appreciate a man of prayer like Jason as he serves in this role of assistant pastor over men's ministry. And he said, hey, I've been, I've been praying for you for a while. He was tuned in to Pastor Ken Graves' church in the stand that uh, Calvary Chapel Bangor against our godless governor, the stance that he has taken. And, and Jason was in tune and uh, came across uh, me and my story and had been praying. So grateful to be here, to have the opportunity to open the word of God with you men. So turning your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. We're going to do just an exposition of a short psalm and something that one is, I believe, so applicable to the days we're living in and applicable to you and I as men. As you're turning there, let me just give a brief testimony of what God has done in my life. Ten years ago, it was, it was 2012, 2012, I was employed by a consultant firm out of Southern Maine. And I was in full rebellion to God. I was a prodigal in its finest sense. My mom literally dragged me to church as a kid, me and my brothers. I knew the truth. At 13 years old, I heard the terms of God. I knew about uh, being saved by grace through faith. I knew the eternal damnation of those who reject. And as a 13-year-old, I responded in my heart to the gospel. But I walked wayward for all my teenage years and 20 years. 2012, I was uh, employed by a company out of Southern Maine, and we had a big contract with Occidental Petroleum, Oxy Petroleum. They uh, have a big contract in the Permian Basin, West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. So at that time in 2012, I was so badly trying to just, you know, make an identity in the world, trying to prove to my family and prove to those I'd gone to high school with that I wasn't going to be the loser that my life was, was heading. I was enslaved to black tar heroin. But I had this job, and we were working in the area, in fact, Carlsbad, New Mexico, and, and uh, secretly and, and, uh, and sadly, so strung out on drugs. I lost that job, and I went back home to Bangor, Maine, and it was in that season of trying to feed a, about a four to $500 a day habit of heroin, I committed a crime in my hometown. I committed a robbery charge in a, in a local Walmart. I tried to steal a purse from a 92-year-old lady at that time. That's how desperate I was. And I got dragged off to jail. October 26, 2014, I got dragged off to Penobscot County Jail. That's my mugshot right there. That was a bad day. But I tell you what, after my time in jail, I got government mandated into a discipleship program. It's the only government mandate I'm grateful for. I got mandated into Pastor Ken Graves' discipleship program. And the word of God met me there. As Pastor Ken said, it was a continuation of being in God's word, being discipled. I should testify, by the way, that was my third attempt in that program. And uh, Pastor Ken, so gracious, so gracious that uh, attempt number one ended poorly. Attempt number two ended poorly. Uh, he actually welcomed me into his home for a season. And I, don't, I don't know what that conversation was like between him and his wife when he said, hey, we should let Travis come into the home. And they did. I'm grateful for the, the special ed program that I went through in that time. But then in a jail cell, Pastor Ken came to visit me again and, and gave an invite for a third time to come in a discipleship program. And I'm uh, so grateful for what God has done since. I, I really began to sense a call, uh, a burden into ministry to, to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel. I spent a few years on staff with Pastor Ken. And then 2020 hit. 
And it was in April, May, Pastor Ken has always had the elders of the church with the staff take a week of praying and fasting and you know, seeking the Lord on behalf of the ministry, our families individually. And it was in that time, uh, April 2020, Pastor Ken had just made his public stance against the, the local government there. And I really began to sense the Lord calling me and my family to launch two ourselves to plant a church. And uh, Barner Research in 2017 listed Portland, Maine as the number five most unchurched city in America. In 2019, it climbed to the number two most unchurched city in America. And uh, we went down and did, just did what we've seen demonstrated. Proclaim the gospel, teach the whole council. We rented a little 1,500 square foot office space, opened the doors, didn't count how many people came. At that time, our governor had a 10 person cap on houses of worship. We didn't mandate masks. We let people come and worship freely as they had their own personal conviction. And I can tell you, brethren, the word of God, the spirit of God is at work. Now, two years later, we're seeing several hundred gather on Sunday mornings. We're seeing a youth group grow of young teenagers standing, those who are in public education. It's been an incredible thing. So that's how I'm connected with you all, grateful for the Calvary movement, grateful for events like this. Now, as you're at Psalm 47, and you know the, the theme text, Jason led us through that study in Luke chapter 19 last night. Let me just read again that 13th verse. This is the, the, the theme of our conference. Jesus says in that parable, Luke 19, verse 13, he said, Jesus called his 10 servants. He delivered to them 10 minas. And he said unto them, occupy until I come. Psalm 47, for you and I this morning, I believe it's going to address something that in our occupation, what God calls us to, in our doing business, in our holding ground, I believe what has to first happen is we have a proper sense of our motivation. We have to know what motivates us, and that will help us be effective in our occupation, whatever profession or trade, or career, whatever industry that's represented here, you men, most of you, I'm sure, are working in the secular environment. Some of you are in construction, law enforcement, some of you guys are in public education, some are working in the oil and gas industry, some are private entrepreneurs, business owners. And, and you think about this, what is the aroma of your work environment? No doubt you're working around heathen men, many of you, right? There's the carnal talk. If this state is anything like the state of Maine, marijuana has been completely legalized, so quite literally all day long, driving down the roads in Portland, Maine, pulling off into a fast food restaurant, everywhere you go, it's the aroma of marijuana. And you're dealing with men who are lusting and there's pornography and, and, and whatever the aroma is in your occupation, you're aware of it. But I dare ask the question, that's the challenge, that was the task given to me by Jason and Pastor Ray, is what should our occupation look like in our jobs? Because brothers, no matter who we work for on this earth, we all have one employer, agree? We work for one employer. And it's not about what we do, it is about who we are. So Pastor Ken reminded us this morning, it is about who we are. And look at if we get our, our focus too much off of Jesus Christ and the Great Commission, think about what we see in the headlines in these last couple of years. Right? I, I appreciate alliteration as, as a public speaker, as someone who gets to share God's word. I appreciate alliteration, so bear with me in just a moment. But in, in the last two years, think of some of the headlines 
we've, we've dealt with. COVID frustration, hyperinflation, government intimidation, angry demonstration, made up insurrections, progressive invasion, LGBT perversion, failed overdose prevention, medical coercion, freedom's cancellation, Biden's incomprehension, Putin's aggression, violent crime escalation, pro-Marxist education, open-door immigration, woke church congregations, Bethel Hillsong elevation. <laughs> and for the first time in American history, a post-Christian population in this nation. So the question goes forth, what does it look like to occupy until Jesus Christ comes? It's got to be a proper motivation. Psalm 47, read it with me, nine verses, and then let me get some context to what I believe is the backdrop to this psalm. Psalm 47 begins there in the title. It says to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Important to realize, three psalms here, Psalm 46, Psalm 47, Psalm 48, the scholars have long maintained it is a trilogy of encouragement. I'm grateful for portions of scripture that bring encouragement. I, I like rebuke and conviction and correction. I need that in my life as a dad. My kids need that in their life. But encouragement, the empower, uh, empowerment of encouragement that we can speak life into people, God does that to us. These three psalms address encouragement, but you've got to understand the backdrop. Because at this time, the rabbis taught that this has a backdrop of King Hezekiah. The reference is 2 Kings 18 and 19. You don't have to turn there. 2 Kings 18 and 19, King Hezekiah, 14 years, is sitting on the throne of the southern kingdom there in Judah. And you know your Bible history, men. You look at a nation that was divided, 10 nations, excuse me, 10 tribes to the north, Israel. They didn't have one good king. To the south, the kingdom of Judah, there was a myriad. Right, And with that, there was this one man, the son of wicked King Ahaz, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, like King David, he had a heart for God. He did a reform in the southern kingdom. He, he you know, cast down the pagan altars, and he really instituted and, and reformed the temple worship. And Hezekiah was a mighty man of God. At that time, in 2 Kings 18 and 19, the same time this psalm was penned, at that time, while the revival in the south was happening, there was resistance to the north. There was pagan idolatry, and there was a whole bunch of people, God's people, who weren't listening to the prophets. And so eventually, King Assyria, king of Assyria, Sennacherib, came. And we've got to understand, men, the Assyrians, these were wicked men. These were powerful men. Secular history is littered with all kinds of fun facts about the cruelty of the Assyrians. King Sennacherib and their mighty army, they would march through and they would skin alive their captors. They would rape, pillage, mutilate. I mean, these are people who made statements. 
Put yourselves in the shoes. Imagine the heart of King Hezekiah. As you begin to get word from messengers that the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, and their over 185,000 troops are now marching south to your city gates, which is what happens in 2 Kings chapter 18. There was a gentleman there, one of the leaders, it tells us, in 2 Kings 18. He was a leader of this uh, pagan army. His name was Rabshakeh. Now, Pastor Ken just reminded us of the power of fear. Right? I don't need to convince you all of what we've seen in two years. I mean, every news program, especially in that opening of 2020, the ominous-looking text in the red, and as he was saying, you know, everything was connected to the unprecedented days we're living in. And the power of fear, plexiglass shields between you and a you know, gas station attendant or your, your bank attendant. I mean, we've seen fear. A campaign of fear begins to go forth over the city of Jerusalem. Let me read the text for you briefly. Rabshakeh, it tells us in 2 Kings 18, verse 28, he stood at the gates of Jerusalem. He called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, and he spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king of Assyria. Do not let your king Hezekiah deceive you. For he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will deliver you. Do not listen to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present. Come out to me, every one of you. How demonic, right? I will take you to your own land. I will give you a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, olive groves, honey, that you may live and not die. So this propaganda campaign goes out over the city. And this is a legitimate threat. I mean, these are the Assyrians. And imagine a godly man like King Hezekiah with his prophet, Isaiah. He did something quite remarkable, even before the days of technology. He forwarded the hate mail right to the Lord. He took the letter from Rabshakeh that his own men had delivered to him, and he walked up to the temple, and he laid it before the, the Lord, God Almighty. He said, God, they wrote this about you. Remember? It tells us the response in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. You guys know this portion of scripture. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 men. Like that. It tells us when the people of Jerusalem arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So you get the backdrop, right? Can you, can you picture the silence that morning as dawn raises over? the city of Jerusalem. There's no more taunting from Rebshaka. Uh, no more the war drums of the Assyrians pounding. There's no more clamoring from the infantry. There's no more pounding of the chariots. It's just silent. In fact, in commentary in Psalm 46, right before this, verse 8, writing at the same time, the psalmist says, He, that's God, makes war to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. Be still and know that I am God. So you get the scene, right? You got over 200,000 people inside a walled city, and they all of a sudden receive early that morning from the messenger, messengers on the wall that their enemy is dead. Stillness all around. The peace and tranquility that has pacified the hearts of God's people seeing such a divine rescue. And then the psalmist puts on paper. Verse one, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. 
Can we agree, the people of that city, men, women, children, they didn't need encouragement that day to start worshiping. Can we agree? You hear men especially, they say funny things, Christian men. You know, whether it's in a state of worship, whether, you know, why they don't lift their hands or whatever it may be, they say, I'm not really an emotional guy. But you watch them on the Super Bowl Sunday when their team's playing, right? You watch them when they catch that big fish, right? No, no we're emotional for the things that we give ourselves to. We're, we're passionate is a better word. The, the people of Jerusalem that day, they didn't need to be, you know, pepped up into excitement because they quite literally had seen salvation. All of that this morning is because I believe likewise we could be reminded of the Lord's salvation that has been afforded to you and I by Jesus Christ that was accomplished on a hill called Calvary. Because I can't be the only man in here that we go through these seasons where at times we, we lose a heart of worship. And as we go through this this morning, I believe there is an aroma, a fragrance, an odor in which God calls you and I to live, that it stands out in the world. The Apostle Paul says that you and I have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 6. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Colossians 1 verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. As overwhelming as it must have been for the children of Israel to wake up that morning and realize this mighty, fierce, cruel army that wanted to kill them was defeated, how much more is the enemy who lies dead at our doors every day because of what Jesus Christ did? The power of sin that many in the room, myself included, I could testify of what Jesus Christ has cleansed me from. And because of what he did on the cross, because what he's accomplished through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, as Paul the Apostle would say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the commandment given, a reminder for you and I, men, is that we are called, in fact, it's the will of God that we would walk in worship. Now, I appreciate Jeff, gifted worship leader. So grateful for music and the art of it. No doubt God is a musician. But with all that, there's something way greater than just music that God calls us to. Worship is, is giving ourselves freely. A free will offering that we are called to give. It says again in verse 1 and 2, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. With triumph, he says, not mediocrity, right? not apathy, Lethargy with triumph. Can you imagine the victory chant, right? We, we did one this morning when we started. Can, can you imagine the victory chant of 200,000 uh, children of Israel in Jerusalem breaking out over the hills of Judea when they realized what one angel did? Remember the Son of God says to Peter in the garden, put your sword away. Don't you know I could call down 12 legions of angels? But with one angel in the Old Testament, what happens? And you think about a victory chant that morning that burst forth over the city walls into the Judean wilderness. It gets attention. No joke, uh, this past week, I was in the LAX airport on my way home from the West Coast Pastors Conference. Me, my wife, my assistant pastor, his wife, 
And there we were, and you know, you get LAX, right? There's busyness that goes on, and there's just the murmuring of people coming and going. There's the conversations and the correspondences, and there's the occasional complaints. And, you know, people just carrying on to and fro in an airport. And we're getting ready to board our plane, and all of a sudden, I kid you not, worship begins to break out in the terminal. I mean, I, it caught my attention. I'm hearing clapping. It's in unison. I hear a different language. I proceed to be Hebrew. I hear at one point at 55A of the third terminal in LA, I hear a shofar, a ram's horn, go off. And I'm thinking, I mean, I picture the rapture being a little bit more exciting, but I, I heard it. Well, what we concluded was there was a, a Hebrew, a, a, a Jewish honeymoon celebration at gate 55 Bravo. About 20 men were celebrating. But you know what it did? Everyone in the terminal, myself included, it got our attention. I believe, likewise, a life given to worship, it draws attention. Now, bear with me on that, because we know that we're not about elevating ourselves. It does, what does a life of worship do? Well, it tells us in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and follow me with this. What does worship do? What is the aroma given? Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, he goes, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, he diffuses a fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ amongst those who are perishing. Our lives, according to the Apostle Paul, Christ living in us, there's an aroma that goes forth. Okay, now leave that scene and go back to Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Here's the victory. 185,000 dead Assyrians. Can we agree that with the sight of salvation, as they're looking over and they see all those dead bodies, with the sight of salvation, there's the smell of flesh. Anyone who's been on the battlefield knows there's a smell of flesh. As a deer hunter, I remember being a 10-year-old kid. My dad gave me, God love him, an unloaded weapon for two years, right? Had to learn that weapon. And as a 10-year-old kid, an unloaded weapon at tree stand, that's torture. And sure enough, out comes eight-point buck. My dad actually was sitting with me that night, and I had to wake him up, tap him on the knee. He woke up from the nap, and that buck, about 200 yards away in the swale grass, fired, and it ran off. And it got dark, and so we get off the tree stand. We start walking towards where he had fired at that buck, and no, no kidding, my dad stopped me in my tracks and said, you smell that? I did. We, we could smell the carcass of that deer. Death has an aroma. There's, there's a smell that goes with it. There's something that no doubt accompanies 185,000 dead Assyrians. So again, there's a parallel here. With the sight of salvation, with salvation, there's a smell of dying flesh, which is what the New Testament says should be in our lives. The word carnage, right? You picture the carnage on the battlefield in Jerusalem. Right? Carnage comes from the Greek word karna. That's where we get the word carnal means flesh, right? We don't want to be carnal. We don't want to be all fleshly, do we? No, God calls us to something different. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The very odor of self-sacrifice, of dying to self, that is the very thing Jesus says to his followers, hey, this is how the world will know your mind. He says, the world will, it tells us in the Gospel of John 13, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have agape, right, self-sacrifice, charity with one another. Would you agree with me that in a world that is obsessed 
was self-love. The world's obsessed with self-love, wouldn't you agree? I mean, I, you know, Instagram and Facebook and social media. Now, you go back further. I mean, before the days of social media, even growing up in middle school and high school, I mean, you know, just self-promotion is the name of the game. You're trying to climb the social ranks. You're trying to prove yourself. The world's obsessed with self-love. Would you agree then, brethren, that self-sacrifice, that sticks out? There's, a, there's an aroma that God has called us to that completely sticks out. Now, those who have been saved from a life of addiction, there's nothing more self-loving than addiction, drug addiction especially. I mean, you are spending all your money and you're ripping off other people of their money. You are doing everything you can to make sure that you infuse yourself with gratification. And everyone around you is dying in the process, right? I spent all of my teenage years, all of my 20s, surrounded by and saturated in self-love. I was fellowshipping with fellows who were doing the same thing. It was a flesh fest, right? That's what addiction is. I remember when I was in seventh grade, me and my family lived on a hill outside of Bangor, Maine. And at that time, we got this kind of Viking lumberjack-looking man who moved next door. Found out he was a local pastor, Ken Graves. I remember the very first introduction to Pastor Ken to my family. I was one of four boys. My mom and dad had two sets of twins. We were all within three years of each other. Those four babies in diapers, four babies in high school my mom and dad raised. And uh, I remember the first introduction to this kind of self-sacrifice was just a charitable deed that Pastor Ken had done to our family. I remember we had well issue problems. We had a 700-foot well, couldn't get water. Pastor Ken just showed up and fueled us up with water and did that continually. It stood out to me. But much more than that was as I got into my addiction years in my 20s, kicked out of the Marine Corps for heroin, failed relationships, dropped out of college, burning bridges left and right, finally being arrested in 2014. And not understanding why, from a ministry in which I had two times failed, one of those times stole cash from one of the pastor's office in a complete rabid state of heroin addiction, lived at Pastor Ken's house, burned that bridge. That's a story for another time. And here I am, 2014, in jail, and on day four, I get a visitor information pass from Ken Graves. They come and say, Carrie, you got a visitor. I come down, and there's Pastor Ken across that plexiglass in a leather jacket, Bible open, <laughs> one to again invite me into a program. Something stood out. I mean, even in jail, you're surrounded by flesh. You're surrounded by self-love. The whole life I had lived with self-love, the world just stinks of it, doesn't it? But there's an aroma of self-sacrifice that God calls us to, especially in our workplace, where the rest of the world and the people that we work with, we know that there's a different motivation. For many, it's just the paycheck. For many, it's just to keep them out of trouble. But God calls us to something in the same way that the people who, when this psalm was written, they had seen with their eyes salvation. We have something, we have someone way greater who's afforded us the gift of salvation, who has abolished sin, has abolished death forever. He has called us to give off a, a fragrance. In the mission field that many of us are called to, we're not probably going to Africa, many in the room, not going to China, some maybe. But God has called us to a mission field right there in our little sphere of influence where we're working. And, and a reminder that I believe what's communicated in this psalm is exactly that. To make the point further before we move on, 
you all are probably aware the first time the word worship is uh, given to us in our English Bibles? Genesis 22. You know, Abraham commanded by God to go and sacrifice the object of his love, the promised son, remember? It tells us there in Genesis 22, verse 5, the very first time the word worship is written in our English Bible, Abraham said to his young servants, you stay here with the donkey while the lad and I go yonder to worship. Worship in of itself is sacrifice. And this is what a psalm is telling us. We have to be reminded again, encouraged again, that we are men of worship. There's a different motivation we have. We've been given the king's peace terms. We've been forgiven. And there's a world around us that so badly needs to hear it, do they not? And how about this? Not only are we motivated by what God has done, I believe the salvation that these people experienced looking out of the city walls, the salvation of the cross that we have behind us, that motivates us to a different lifestyle. But it's not just what God has done. Can we consider how kind of God that likewise we have a motivation of what he promises to do in the future? Look at verse 3. He will, in Psalm 47, verse 3, he will subdue the peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellent of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. I, I like that, Selah, in our common vernacular. It's, what do you think about that? Guys, the God of Jacob. You guys know Jacob's story, right? You know, the heel grabber, the swindler, the scoundrel, quite literally. God doesn't say the God of Israel. He reminds us that God is the one who changes identities. He's the one that gives new natures. And he goes, this is the one who was going to, when it's all written, he's going to subdue. How gracious that not only do we worship God because of the cross, we have the end written for us. And brethren, it's in our favor, isn't it? Has not the last year or two for us ardent patriots in the room, right? We love this nation. Many of us have fought for this nation. Has it not been a taste of disappointment as we look around and we see that our wonderful democratic republic, this constitutional state of the American colonies that became the United States of America, it has been a taste of disappointment to realize that it's not as strong or secure as we once hoped, right? However, we don't have to worry about that in God's kingdom, right? God's promises are yes and amen. We don't have to worry about it. I mean, we're looking around, we're thinking, these free and fair elections don't seem free or fair anymore, do they? And we're, and we're thinking, what's happening to this great land? But God tells us, he telegraphs for us, Old Testament and New Testament, I'm coming back again. That, that's the theme, right? Occupy, I dare say, worship until he comes. He's coming back again. Verse 3 says, He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. The Corinthians needed to be reminded of this. You know, a very corrective epistle in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle has to six times in one chapter say, Do you guys not know? Right? In other words, you guys should know that one day you're going to judge angels, he says to the, the Christian. One day, he says, the saints will judge the world. The, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 14 says there's a day coming where the saints of God will look at that powerful enemy, Satan. But in Isaiah 14, there's a day coming where we will look at him and say, this is the one who caused so much trouble. Well, in light of Christ, it's a minion, right? 
These are things that we're reminded of. In verse 4, he will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. He's talking about a future event here in Psalm 47. Yes, we worship and we have to be men of worship because of the forgiveness of Calvary. But also, there's a glorious ending to this whole thing. And we look forward to that. Uh, probably many in the room like me, we can admit from past choices that our chooser, our choosometer, whatever you want to call it, a little broken. We, we settle on things. Um, the enemy is the best at that. He, you know, he tempts us with a carrot, then we get the carrot, and it never satisfies. It always leads us into bondage, right? I like that the Holy Spirit through the psalmist here, it says, no, he will choose our inheritance. Because you and I would settle on something way not cool, wouldn't we? We would settle on something. We'd, we'd look at like Hawaii and be like, that would be paradise. Brethren, I lived a year and a half in Hawaii, serving Christ. My first pastoral job was under Bud Stonebreaker in Hawaii. That was a beautiful place. But goodness, sin is rampant there like it is everywhere else. Methamphetamine, domestic violence, poverty. No, we would settle on something. God says, I will choose. Remember, as it says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, thought has not entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's a good motivation, isn't it? We think about what God has promised for us. And look at verse 5 of the psalm. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. You notice that? Now, I don't know if that was the victory that night when the angel came and they, they heard a shout. Maybe that, maybe that was the sign. They came out and they realized, goodness, they're all dead. Interestingly, however, is the psalmist tells us that the Lord that night went up with a shout and a sound of a trumpet. But brethren, that's exactly the noise you and I are expecting him to come down with, isn't it? I believe worship should be happening from then all the way until that glorious day. You know, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, right? Harpazo in the Greek, in, in the Latin, raptuso in the English, rapture. We rapture, right? It's in the Bible. We, we look forward to that. And I don't believe in verse 6 and 7. I don't believe we need like a doctorate in divinity to understand what God's trying to say to us. Can I read it again? Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. And if you didn't catch it, sing praises with understanding. Dads, we get that, right? You sometimes got to keep repeating things. How gracious of God to remind us, sing praises. In a world right now that is so lacking hope, lacking truth, goodness, right? I mean, I was not a conspiracy theorist two years ago. If, you're not, if you are not a conspiracy theorist today, I dare say you're not paying attention, right? I mean, the world is lacking truth. It's lacking hope. And you and I, there should be an aroma of our life. I've been there, brethren. I have walked in the spiritual wilderness. I believe as a 13-year-old boy, I truly believe I was, I was saved. Now, the theology can be mixed up on that. I agree. My life went total prodigal. But I can tell you I had a conflicted and a convicted conscience through all of that rebellion. But I've walked in the spiritual wilderness. No victory. You know, 
trying to witness to my heroin dealer. It's, it's, it's you know, it's conflicting, you know? <laughs> trying to witness to the female I'm in sexual sin with. It's conflicting and damaging, right? I've, I've been there. God doesn't want us there, brother, right? We, we, yes, God brings us through the, the Red Sea of salvation. He saves us from Egypt, but there's another body of water God brings us through, right? The Jordan River. We take land. We come into the land of Canaan. We're fighting the giants, and too many men, they're laying down back in the wilderness doing U-turns. God doesn't want us there. And, and we're reminded again that there's a life of worship he's called us to. And I, I think he lays it out there for us. Verse 7, he said, sing praises with understanding. That's unique, right? The word there, masquil. It's interesting because there's 13 psalms of masquil of the 150. There's psalms of instruction. He tells us in the end of verse 7, he goes, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, and sing praises with understanding. That's what this is, right? Well, why do we gather under the teaching of God's word? Well, of course, he commands us to it, but we grow in our, our devotion to him. We grow in our, our knowledge of him. We grow in our appreciation of him. I have made an observation, six and a half years-ish of pastoral ministry, serving on staff with Ken as an assistant, now two and a half years in this role of senior pastor. Six and a half years, and all that time serving at a church where there's three services a week. So, you know, my weird brain, I do the calculator math, and I think, okay, six and a half years times 52 weeks times that by three, because three services a week, that's about 1,014 church services I've sat in. I did the math for Don McClary. He's at three million right now. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I say that to say there's an observation I've made. I've made an observation that, uh, you know, when we come in for Sunday morning, we come in for our midweek, we come in, just as Jeff said it, we, we have all these distractions and things going on, right? The, the water, you know, the water heater breaks at home, or your car's got issues, or, you know, your kid was throwing food at your wife on your way to church that day, and all this stuff, then you come in and someone's sitting in your seat. You're thinking, don't they know that's my seat? I don't like that guy, right? And, you know, you're doing all this stuff, and, you know, but the songs are going, and you're trying to enter into a place of worship. I have made an observation, and this is why at our church, Calvary Chapel, Greater Portland, I always have the worship team come back up after a time of being God's Word. This is like an observation I have made in those 1,014-ish church services where the people of God, they really worship. They enter in at the end of a study where they've been instructed in, in who God is, what he's done, what he's saved us from what he's going to do. And I believe there's something powerful there. Sing praises with understanding. Tells us in verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together the people of God of Abraham. God reigns over the nations. Now listen, our news apps don't tell us that right now, do they? We're looking around the aggression in Eastern Europe, the aggression with Putin. We're seeing what's happening in China. We're seeing the own demise of our nation. We're seeing world powers and world elites, and we're thinking, what's going on? The psalmist knew, uh, the prophet Daniel would tell us, God raises up a nation, he brings down a nation. He puts a king on the throne, he takes a king off the throne. Solomon said the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. What a healthy reminder through all of this that God reigns over the nations because, again, this is all going to be put in order, right? There's a king coming that doesn't have term limits, right? There's a king coming who's going to reign forever in righteousness that you and I get to rule and reign with. 
And part of our motivation for worship in our occupation, as I've already said, it's not just what he's done, it's what he's going to do. And I'm going to steal a, uh, a little picture that Pastor Ken years ago said, and it's always stood with me. But any man in here who has ever been a fan of the fight game, I don't care if it's UFC, boxing, you'd have to admit, as you look at men who are, you know, at the higher level of fighting, you know, I was a fan for a while of Conor McGregor, an arrogant man, but, you know, he backed it up. You have to be pretty unbelievable if you're in the middle of your bout, your fight, I don't care what the, the martial art is, if you tell your opponent what you're about to do, right? You say, I'm going to put this hand on your chin in three, two, one, boom. You don't do that, right? No, you got to get kind of crafty with it and you do counters and fakes. Can we acknowledge that God through all of the Bible has done that? He has telegraphed to the enemy and to those who are listening exactly how this is going to lay out. He says from Genesis 3.15, there's going to be one that comes from the seed of a woman. He then goes through and says it's going to be the child of Abraham, the lineage. He's going to come from a tribe. He doesn't just say the tribe. I'm going to tell you what town he's going to be born in. He's not just going to come from a town. I'm going to tell you, according to what Daniel said, the very day he comes riding in on a little lowly colt. And nobody knew it. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that if Satan himself knew, he wouldn't have crucified the king of glory sealed his fate but he says to his disciples i don't call you no longer slaves i call you friends because i'm telling you what i'm about to do shouldn't that you know help our worship posture stand up and as we're looking around the world and we go through you know that list of alliteration i read off and we're thinking this isn't good things are bad right isn't it good to realize god you're gonna take care of all of this you're coming back again That'll affect the way that we work, right? That'll affect the way that we conduct ourselves, the way we love sacrificially our wives, our children. It's a wonderful reminder. It tells us in verse 9, the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. That's how the psalm ends. Now again, remember, this is written when 185,000 shields are laying on the battlefield, right? So the psalmist is going, God... These shields, which were not just a defensive, but an offensive weapon, I mean, this cruel army of Assyria, God, by sending one angel, wiped them out. And the psalmist goes, the shields of the earth, they belong to God, right? So you can imagine this all happening, and likewise for you and I, we're thinking, you know what, the nukes of North Korea, they belong to God. You know, those mail-in ballots of Chicago and Philadelphia, they, they belong to God, right? He's in charge. And, you know, this, this wonderful reminder that God is sovereign. You look at verse 2 again. The Lord Most High is awesome. He's a great king over all the earth. He's allowed you and I to have his peace terms. And we don't just have ourselves radically transformed. We don't just have our lives radically saved and put on a new course. But then he tells us, do business till I come. Occupy. Let your light so shine, Jesus said, right? You know, there's a, there's a gentleman in, in the audience here this morning. He came with Pastor Ken and I. Aaron Davis, where are you at, my friend? There you are, back there, hand up. Aaron Davis and I, we met in a drug house in 2013. My life was in rebellion. I testified of that, and so was his. He was a prodigal Calvary kid, too. And we're both on crack and heroin. And... So we're in a little drug house on 2nd Street. It actually was my birthday. December 31st, 2013. 
and uh, I go make a transaction for drugs. I'm so spun out, I failed the program, kicked out of Ken's house. I'm just on a rabid trail of destruction. And uh, at that time, Aaron Davis, I know he'd appreciate me testifying of the story. He put a knife to my throat in the hallway. <laughs> Listen, military men, law enforcement, they tell you about fight or flight. They don't tell you about freeze. You don't realize when someone puts a knife to your throat, you're trying to, you're like, is he kidding? I think he's kidding. He's kidding, right? No, he's robbing me. <laughs> Robbed me. And uh, God did business with me. I got arrested a little year later. Realized the great debt that was forgiven me. Pastor Ken came out to a conference, met his uh, stepfather who's here. He's one of the assistant pastors at Calvary Chapel, Silver City. Uh, Ken had seen Mike, and Mike said, hey, pray for Aaron. Aaron's, he, his addiction's killing him. He's in the hospital with an infection. And Ken came back and told me that. I was in the school ministry years ago, and he said, hey, you, gotta, you should write Aaron. You should forgive him for what he did to you. <laughs> yeah, you're right, I should, right? So me and Aaron made forgiveness. And, well, what do you know? I, I go to plant the church in 2020. All those years have passed since that hallway on 2nd Street. I get an email from Aaron. He said, hey, I, I'm with this girl. We, just have, we have a six-week-old child. He says, uh, can I come to the, your first church service? I'm like, of course you can, Aaron. Now, honestly, I, I thought Aaron was just going to show up, shake hands, make amends, and go on. And he started coming to everything. He came to our first service. He came to our midweek. He came to the next week. They got married on a Sunday morning two months later in front of the whole church. Aaron says, you know what? I know the Lord's called me to something. He goes up and does the one-year school ministry with Ken graduates that and he's now planting a church in the southern part of of maine just 45 minutes from where i am guys god does that stuff doesn't he it is self-sacrifice i know it's jesus christ in pastor ken and his ministry but watching the ministry of self-sacrifice serving others especially those the world writes off you know like guys like me and seeing how the lord is saving people History buffs in the room. January 1st, 1863. The big day in American history. On January 1st, 1863, the godly and great president, Abraham Lincoln, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Three and a half million slaves living in America, three and a half million, were legally, under the law, free. Those who study history says that at that time, about 5%, just shy of 200,000, Black men and women, slaves, actually walked in their freedom. And there's all kinds of extenuating circumstances, no doubt. But do you see the parallel? How many today freedom proclaimed at Calvary's Hill? The Bible tells us that we are given the newness of life. The same Spirit of God that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. That we have put to death the mortal deeds of our flesh. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. How many other Christian, Christian men is there has been a proclamation of freedom, but not walking in it, still enslaved to your captors. God does not want that for you. We are called to live lives of self-sacrifice, and it's a worship, and it's something that stands out in the world, and God uses it if we're so willing to be allowed to do so. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word today. I'm, I'm grateful to be in fellowship with these brethren. I am so grateful, Lord, for the way that you worked in our midst. Lord, I thank you for salvation. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving Aaron and how you made that story something that we can boast on. Lord, thank you for the men in this room. Lord, we, you've been entrusted us with so much. We have wives and children and grandchildren. 
Lord, we have roofs over our houses. Lord, we still have some freedom in this nation. Help us, Lord, to be useful for our Father's business. Help us to occupy and to do so in self-sacrifice. That there would be a fragrance from our lives that turns heads. People see something different in us, Lord, that they see Christ magnified through our lives. Bless the rest of the conference, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.